Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Open Floor. I'm Ben Golver, subbing in as host for Andrew Sharp. This week, my guest host, my guest co-host is Rob Mahoney, who coincidentally happened to be in L.A. Uh, this week. So we're face-to-face uh, in his apartment downtown Los Angeles, a beautiful view uh, of the city. And Rob, we are here to satisfy the urges of dozens, if not hundreds, of our listeners who all emailed in, first of all, to have me ask you to come on, but then second of all, to debate, debunk myths, and explain what the heck we're doing with the top 100 list every single year. Yeah, it's an exhaustive process. We're about to dip into it again uh, for this coming season, so it's a good time as any to, to look back and see what we did right, what we did wrong, kind of rehash some of the conversations we had and, and dig back into it. So to be clear, we said we would never do this. Okay, that was really right up front. We were like, okay, this is way too boring. No one's going to get into it. But Andrew, let's give Andrew credit before we make fun of him for the rest of the podcast. He's in Europe. He's not even going to hear this. Uh, He has always said, no, I think people would actually like to know what you guys value, how you go through the process of ranking. And there's not like an easy solution to that, but we're going to try to give you a little taste of that. Uh, The second reason that I wanted to do this podcast, uh, in addition to the clamoring that we've got from the outside, is I am a little bit sick of being thrown under the bus by you. I mean, okay, I'm always out here taking all the arrows when, you know, Toronto, Canada, DeMar DeRozan, all these people are completely frustrated. Somehow I'm always in the, the crossfire there. You're not. So you're on here now to stand up for your own opinions, maybe vouch for some of my poor opinions. And we're going to share the blunt of criticism together because Andrew compiled a list of questions to hit us with uh, to complain about last year's list. And we're going to address those as we talk about this coming list, if that makes sense. It has. It's actually been my operating procedure for the last couple of years. Every time I get an email, every time I get a radio request for Top 100 oh. asking people to defend, I say, you know what? That was actually a Ben Golliver decision. Here's his contact information. You should really direct all of your anger towards him. So I'm, I'm glad to, to at least get some of the blowback from you today. What a confession. This all makes so much more sense now. Um, let's start at the bottom of last year's list. Back before we do that, though, quickly let's summarize what do we look at in terms of this ranking. Right. So we try to rank these players in a vacuum as much as possible, meaning we're, we're trying to divorce them from how they'll actually perform on their respective teams in the coming season and look at if you were to strip down their great teammates or their terrible teammates, their great coaches or their bad coaches, the weird fits, all these kinds of things, and look at what kind of value does that player present you, uh, you know, absent all of that context. So great case in point, Kyrie Irving looks phenomenal when he gets to play with LeBron James. Now he's in all these trade rumors and everyone's having this conversation. What does a team that's led by Kyrie look like? And all of a sudden, these things that everybody wanted to apologize in Kyrie's game for, his defensive, his holes, maybe his... Uh, not pure playmaking skill, uh, you know, maybe some of the effort night-to-night stuff. These red flags that we would try to consider in the vacuum context that don't necessarily get talked about every day when you're winning 55 games every year with LeBron James, all of a sudden those rise to the surface. So we're trying to pick those out, right? Definitely. And so we, we want to consider both of those contexts. We want to think about Kyrie with LeBron and without him and bridge are ranking somewhere in the middle of those to account for the variety of contexts he would actually be in. Because if he was on Brooklyn with no other talent, that could get really ugly. It could make Kyrie yeah. look worse than he actually would be in a vacuum. Definitely. And so Ben and I each compile our individual lists, then we compare, we kind of negotiate how to move guys to to kind of mediate between those lists, and ultimately we'll 
kind of see how it shakes out, and then you get into kind of the apples and oranges of how guys stack up against each other. You're looking at a lot of names in direct comparison, and that's where things get pretty ugly in terms of the, the grittiness of our comparisons. So we look at per-game stats, uh, raw numbers. We look at advanced stats, and usually we look at what win shares, uh, player efficiency rating, sure. real plus minus, offense and defensive rating. Yep. We also look at their team's performance. Like if you're the most important defensive player on a top five defense you get credit for leading your defense if you're the most important defensive player on a bottom five defense not quite as much credit uh, we also look at whatever information is available in terms of red flags that could be health that could be time missed uh, you know due to injuries uh, significant time uh, that could be locker room issues that could be suspensions in some cases those will count against you because again we're looking at a vacuum where we want to have a list that represents, if you have a pick of uh, the 100 top players, who's gonna be in the order, and you're gonna take everything into account there. Um, we also look at track record of sustained success. One good year is not as good as three consecutive good years. Definitely. And I think we also look at postseason performance too, right? Definitely so. And I mean, we're trying to capture the granular and the global both. So, you know, we wanna look at an individual player's defensive rebounding percentage for example but we also want to know how does his team rebound with him on the floor how do how does his team how does his team perform in a variety of scenarios with him on the floor and a different you know different groupings and lineups and things like that so there's a lot which is why there's a lot of room for debate and argument and adjustment as the year goes on uh, but that's part of what makes it so fun so just to be clear our list is right I mean, we are correct, but we're also acknowledging that it's completely subjective. Yes. So we're standing by it 100%. We're going down in <laughs> flames with it. Uh, but we understand that over the course of a year, we can't predict injury. Uh, we can't predict guys' careers falling apart. Uh, we can't uh, predict completely age-related decline. We do try to factor that in. Yes. Uh, but you just never know when guys are going to kind of fall off a cliff. Um, and we try to strip out our own personal biases as much as possible. That's one area where hopefully we kind of check each other a little bit in some of those ways too. Yeah, I think if Andrew was here though, he would say, look, you guys have groupthink. You're both basketball nerds and, and you guys don't favor the pure bucket getters. You overvalue defense. And uh, I think that could potentially be a fair criticism. But hey, we think, and I, I hope you agree with me on this, that Stuff like defense still doesn't quite get enough love. And we're yeah. talking about the general conversation, right? Well, I mean, look at the players who get big minutes in the playoffs. Look at the players who fall out of their team's rotations in the playoffs. And look at right now at the players who are getting the money. And so I think, you know, there may be some groupthink there. There inevitably is. It's kind of hard to wipe from your, your brain in that way. But a lot of the league is operating in that way as well. So we have these kinds of conversations, these phone calls. They take place over a couple of weeks. We put our list together. We combine them into one list. We send that out for feedback. What are our most egregious errors? We'll ask our colleagues. Um, and then, you know, eventually we just pull the trigger on the list. Yep. So, again, this is a forward-thinking list. So if we look back to last year's list, the top 100 of 2017, it was meant to reflect the upcoming season. Uh, just like this year's list, the top 100 of 2018 will reflect the upcoming season. So without further ado, let's start at the bottom of last year's list with some of Andrew's questions. Let's. And he, right off the bat, number 100, he wanted to know, okay, Devin Booker, uh, he was passionate at the yeah. start of last season that Booker was way underrated. At, and we had him at 100. Um, and we fought over it and said, look, young guys, you know, sometimes uh, it's easy to get caught up in the preseason hype going into year two. Uh, now that we look back on putting Booker at 100, 
do we feel good about that placement? And then how much of a leap do you see going from year two to year three for him? I do feel pretty good about his placement. I think he will probably move up in the coming season just because so yep. many of these other older guys are going to be moving down and out of the list. And so relative to kind of where we had stacked him up, I feel pretty good about his placement. It's just a matter of some attrition of, of the league turning over a little bit. So he's getting better, certainly. You still want to see some improvement from him defensively. You still want to see some of the way his production might translate into more winning basketball. Certainly even his high-scoring performances were asterisk a little bit this season. Uh, just... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You didn't take the 70 at face value? Maybe we should. Maybe we should. You know what? Top 10, Devin Booker. <laughs> Everybody else get out of the Not way. Not even just top 10 of 2018. Top 10 all time. Mm. I mean, look, this scoring performance is something that Jordan never did. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy to think but about. But look, we're, we're making light of that. But this is the kind of conversation that comes up with a player like Devin Booker because he is so skilled. The talent, the ceiling is so obvious. But this is a one-year exercise. This is not the trade value column. This is not the who's the most untouchable five years from now uh, ranking. This is who are the top 100 of this coming season. And when you look back at last year, did he play a single meaningful minute all season long? Yeah. I don't think he played one meaningful minute. I mean, they were out so early, and it was kind of a joke down the stretch in terms of how they were chasing stats and you know resting guys and tanking so hard. That counts against him. It doesn't. It's not saying he's worthless. Not saying every team on that, uh, every player in that kind of a team context is worthless. We have to take that into account when we're judging him against other two guards who are playing meaningful minutes, right? Well, and another of our criteria, too, that we didn't mention earlier is that contract doesn't matter. And Correct. so Devin Booker, while he's on you know, a rookie-scale, super team-friendly contract, on the cap sheet looks amazing. For the purposes of this exercise, we're not looking at that number at all. We're not looking at relative value to actual cost of the team at all. It's strictly based on their game. And so Booker, while quite good and advanced for his age and you know among the best players in his draft class and one of the better young prospects in the league, I don't know that he has a ton of upward momentum yet. I think we still want to see him make a couple more jumps in his game before he's really, really making a, a move up this list in a meaningful way. Yeah, so to be clear, we never put rookies on the list. And so they're just not uh, you know, even considered. Yeah. And one of the trickiest things to do is to take a player uh, who's coming into year two and, and rank them. And usually I would say we're more conservative than aggressive with those guys, right? Like, for example, one second-year player last year who we really argued about a lot was Towns. You were really high on Towns right. uh, to the point where I want to say you almost had him in the top 10, right? I did, and, and that would have been, uh, been a reach. It happens because it's so easy to get on these young guys to, to really buy in when they're promising and you can just see it unfolding, but you just don't quite know when it's going to happen. Another example of a guy who we might have argued about who was young is Giannis. I was more aggressive on Giannis than you were. We scaled back on Giannis, and I think in that case it burned us a little bit. So, there, again, it's not a perfect formula. If we right. scale back on Towns, I think we had him around 25. That feels pretty right based on his performance last year. I think he's going to be higher next year. With Giannis, we had him closer in the 50s. That does not feel right at all. I mean, no. th that feels like one of our biggest regrets because we were a little too conservative on that young guy. Uh, in Booker's case, uh, because the efficiency wasn't totally there in his rookie year, because he wasn't an elite offensive player, he had elite potential, but you know clearly not quite uh, getting there. That's why we dinged him a little bit because we also realized defensively he's a train wreck. I mean, definitely you know he might have made a little progress in year two, but not enough to you know be a, a two-way type guy. Um, and then again, you know his his play wasn't really translating to wins and that matters to us 
No, definitely so. And he's another guy, too, who when you consider what he was doing in college versus what he's doing in the NBA, he's still going through a very gradual progression in terms of being a lead ball handler, in terms of creating a lot more for himself, scoring and, and passing out of a lot of different kinds of situations he wasn't used to. And so while the production is nice in terms of your possession-to-possession -possession offense with him in control of the ball, he's not really at a point where he's going to be completely trustworthy yet. He's still figuring this thing out. And I, we expect him to. Yeah. I mean, you know, all signs are still positive there. Uh, I didn't see any major new red flags jumping out. We expect him to jump up uh, in next year's list. Let's uh, move forward to another guy who was a little bit higher on the list, and he jumps out when you look back at it. Bismack Biombo, 91. Now, last year we saw a trend of these guys. Another one was, you know, number 76, Jan Mahinmi. And, uh, you know, Sharp had the question. Basically his question was just himself sobbing into uh, my email for about 15 <laughs> minutes with Mahinmi. With both uh, Mahinmi and Biombo. When we were looking at them last uh, summer, they both got big contracts, both defensive-minded centers, both expected to play major minutes, uh, both coming off you know pretty strong seasons in terms of their own career potential. They get the big paydays. Uh, when you look back at those rankings, Mahinmi at 76 and, and Biombo at 91, I mean, it's likely both those guys are off our list next year, right? I would think so. Did we overcorrect and see, hey, the market is valuing these def defensive-minded centers. We need to value those guys in our list because um, that's who was getting paid, or those guys were among the types of players who were getting paid last year? Or was this just a case of two guys who happened to not have great seasons? I think it was two guys who had had solid careers to that point and had shown some blips of meaningful progress over the course of that previous year and so i mean with mahimi consider the pacers were a top three defense coming into this ranking paul george was obviously a huge reason for that but mahimi was really solid for them he was and he had shown a lot of offensive progress as well doing a little more reading out of the pick and roll the pacers were trusting him in different kinds of offensive situations and so we knew that his health was a persistent concern you know he, he fouls a little bit too much to be comfortable with him in a huge minute role but we liked what we had seen there and then with biombo I think coming off of that playoff series and coming off of that run where he was a monster rebounder, where he was showing that he can overcome some of his liabilities, I think he was catching and finishing a little bit better, still not going to be any kind of meaningful scorer for you, but maybe he can do a little bit more than we thought. And we wanted to reward the fact that maybe there is a place in this game for if you have enough shooting around them, if you have enough scoring around them, these rebounding and defensive specialists among centers, considering the, the defense at that position in particular is so valuable. And now I don't think he lived up to that ranking. I don't think he's going to be on our list next year. That's kind of some of what we were thinking about for sure. Yeah, I think those guys seemed even more in vogue last year than right now because the buzzword I think now is the versatility, right? It's the switchability. It's the bigs who can get out and recover. Uh, and I think last year, uh, rim protection, more traditional-minded, like center-type defense might have been a little bit more in vogue than it is now. Obviously, you always want to have rim protectors, but I think that that was sort of the flavor of the month last year, and that may have dragged us a little bit higher on those players uh, than certainly they would be this year. Uh, another example with Mahin Mio, kind of you know different position, different story, different profile completely, uh, but a similarity would be a guy like Brandon Knight, who was on our list last year. It's amazing how much injuries can impact players' reputations, right? Like, we're not even going to consider Brandon Knight for the top 100, and he has season-ending uh, ACL surgery, so he's going to be off the radar for a long time. But even if he hadn't had that injury, he wouldn't even been on our top 100. He might not have even been in a top 200 or top 300 list going into next season because his year was so bad. Uh, 
guys can just fall apart. Like a guy like Mahimi can go from a coveted commodity to an untradeable contract uh, in some people's eyes very quickly. A guy like Brandon and I can go from a player who was getting compared to a Reggie Jackson, who was a fringe all-star candidate a few years ago when he was in Milwaukee, to the one of the worst RPM guys in the league, a guy you don't even want on your team, very quickly. So there are some factors, I guess, that my point is here that are out of our control. Yeah, I mean, the league moves fast in some of these cases where guys, as you mentioned, just fall apart or their careers seem to devolve in some way. Injury can certainly be related to that, but also, you know, they get into certain situations, they get into certain settings. And again, we, we try to control for that as much as possible. Knights seems to be a little bit a step beyond that, where it's not just who he is to the Suns, but it's kind of what kind of player he's become and the emptiness of his production. And that was... I mean, look, he was only on this list. We looked at kind of his crazy, you know, per minute and box score stats with a little bit of a skeptical eye. And so we were trying to reconcile this guy who's producing in the box score in a huge way, but that isn't quite translating to winning basketball in some of these situations yet. And I think that really undercut him in terms of putting him as low as it did on this list. And for a while, I don't think he was even on our list. I think he made kind of a late push to even make it. And it certainly would affect him going forward, even if he were healthy. Another great example of this is Damari Carroll at 73 from last year, right? Like, and we've always talked about, let's give guys two chances. If you have that bad injury and, uh, you know, one that Sharp was just railing us about uh, in the past uh, was a guy like Chandler Parsons because of his extended injury history, we usually like to be more forgiving than you would think, right? Like if you have one bad injury year uh, or maybe, you know, you have an ACL okay, let's, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. If you have two back-to-back, like, say, a Jabari Parker, if he hadn't had that knee injury, he's definitely in the discussion this year, this past year. Now he's got two. He is going to have to really show something next year and beyond to work his way back into this conversation. Uh, so a guy like Damari Carroll, to me, the issues have been long enough here where we've given him the benefit of the doubt last year, kept him on the list. Going forward, I'm a little bit more skeptical. You agree? Yeah. I mean, these are thorny questions. And and to me, it's kind of illustrative of a consistency in what we're trying to approach this in terms of a philosophy where we want guys to really prove it. We want them to show over several seasons that they deserve a place on this list. Once they're kind of in that group, even if they have an injury, even if they have one down year or one bad season with a new team or whatever, we want to be able to account for that and to kind of give them some benefit of the doubt once they have proven it. And then on the other side of that, as you mentioned, the young guys who are coming up, uh, especially, you know, if a young guy gets injured, it's a very different thing. Like Jabari, as you mentioned, he hasn't really established himself year over year over year in the way that some guys in this list have. He was never even in the list. Yeah. So now to work on the list, it's even more difficult. Whereas, you know, a guy like Rudy Gay, uh, he had been on the list previously, not very high. You know, we were aware of uh, the things that drive people nuts about Rudy Gay, but there is a level of talent there. Uh, you know, he has an Achilles, you know, he's going to maybe be borderline, probably not on, but like, because he has that previous body of work, uh, he's at least being talked about. And then you see the Spurs, you know, show some faith in his ability to recover by paying him this summer. That may give him a, a little bit of an edge. Again, I'm not forecasting that he's going to be on the list necessarily, but um, that is the type of situation where uh, a guy like Gay gets the credit for his past work. A guy like Jabari, who has no past work, is going to have more of a mountain to kind of uh, you know climb in our eyes. 
Um, okay, this is another question from Sharp, yeah. uh, and it's directed towards you. And he says, does Kyle Korver have nude photos of you <laughs> in compromising situations? How did he end up at number 70 on the list? This is a tough one to, to look at in retrospect. And there are a couple of these guys where, especially the veterans, as we mentioned, who had been at an all-star level or a near all-star level, you know, over most of their career, they're kind of starting to decline, but you don't want to write them off just yet. And I think Corver was in that group as well as some other guys in this kind of like 50 to 75 range where we want to benefit the body of work. We want to benefit who they are as a teammate and a contributor to a winning team. But Corver, I mean, he just, he, he didn't fall apart, but he's moved into a different stage of his career. There's no question. And I can just hear Sharp's voice in my head echoing, saying, well, Corver was never really an all-star because he's not the lead guy on his team. Everything's being set up for them. That Hawks team was fluky. You guys overrated him two years ago, and you brought him down a little bit. Uh, but he's still way too high and shouldn't even be in this conversation. I guess make the general case, because you've made this case to me many times in our conversations, for the complimentary quote-unquote guy who makes his teammates better solely by his presence. Well, for one thing, I think when we're watching the game you know, on the most basic level, just watching the ball action, watching what offenses are trying to accomplish, we, we tend to be impressed by the guys who score. We tend to be impressed by the guys who create. The thing is, when you look at guys who roll to the rim consistently or the guys who really know how to navigate like Corver does around screens and the catch-and-shoot situations, these are not only skills that not everyone can have and they make look really easy, but not that not most people most people don't want to do them. You know, yeah. Most bigs in the league, it's hard to get them to stand there and set a real screen and then roll to the rim. And with guys like Corver, you can teach them to shoot. You can take a good shooter and show him the paths you want him to run. But what he influences on the floor just by running his routes with the threats he poses, with how much he clears space for his teammates and what that influences, how that influences the offense in kind, these things are really meaningful. And so when you look at whether it's Corver or Danny Green or any of these guys who you can slide into lineups to make other players better, that is a skill. And so we don't tend to value it or look at it the same way as guys who have great handles or, or just a great shot or can get to the rim consistently. But you need all of those things. And as we've seen in the NBA, the guys who do these kinds of things get paid too. Corver, case in point, this summer got more than I think a lot of people expected him to. I think he got his biggest contract ever <laughs> per year at this point of his career, which is crazy. Uh, for people who don't know Rob, uh, and if you're not listening to his Breakaway podcast, please listen to it. Season one's in the book. Season two is coming. He's got some great X and O type interviews, deep dives into stuff like Dan Tony Ball uh, or Joe Johnson's many career uh, chapters are just phenomenal profile. But Rob, you're a traditionalist type of guy. I mean, you're out there playing pickup, like you're talking about screen setting, you're talking about moving on off the ball. That is a very valuable perspective in uh, a list like this, because uh, this is the type of stuff that you would think executives are looking at too, right? Like when you're trying to build a team, you're trying to, you know, you're in charge of your own vacuum as a GM. You're looking for all these complementary pieces. You can't have five Kyries and expect to win, right? You have to have some of these other guys. And how much are they worth versus, you know, how, how much are some skill sets worth compared to others? Uh, it helps to have that traditionalist viewpoint, right? No, definitely. And you want, again, you want to look at all of these little fundamental angles to how these players contribute. And they may seem small or they may seem context specific or they may, you may say, oh, he's only good because he plays with LeBron or Steph or Kawhi or whoever it is, but the ability to slide into those slots and fill those complementary roles, again, it, it can be really thankless work. It takes a specific kind of personality type to do it, a specific type of game to do it, and I think those players deserve to be rewarded and valued as well.
It's Open Floor with Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver. Hey guys, great news. Today's episode is brought to you by Barbasol. You know, the biggest thing to happen to Barbasol since shaving cream is also the only thing to happen to Barbasol since shaving cream. Introducing new Barbasol razors. The brand America trusts for a close, comfortable shave now has premium disposable razors. Barbasol's close shave technology on every razor means you get an advanced pivoting head and ultra-thin open-flow blades. The Ultra 6 razor also features a 7th blade, specifically designed to refine and style tricky areas like under-the-nose, sideburns, and beard. Visit Barbasol.com and get a $2 savings coupon and see for yourself why Barbasol razors are the number one new disposable razors out there. You're looking good, America. You're shaving with Barbasol. Check out Barbasol.com for that coupon. All right, next question from Sharp uh, regarding Andrew Wiggins, uh, Timberwolves wing Andrew Wiggins. Last year, he came in at uh, 67, and we heard from a lot of people that that was too low, that we had underrated him, that he was better than 67. He's a you know 20-plus points per game score. He's on the rise, playing huge minutes, no injury issues. Uh, they're a respectable team, not a playoff team quite at that point, but respectable um, and yet he's only at 67, uh, down around similar players, like below a guy like Marvin Williams, who, again, is a more complimentary player, uh, similar uh, towards a guy like Danny Green, who, again, maybe he's a fourth or fifth option at best on offense. Uh, now that you, in retrospect, Sharp wants to know, was Wiggins actually underrated by us or overrated by us or properly rated by us? I think he was about properly rated, and I'd be curious to hear your take on this as well. I mean, I think you could argue he deserves to be slightly higher, just based on, again, some other guys who we may have overvalued who would slip down. But I think in terms of range, it's about right. And with him, again, it's a matter of if he's your a, a lead offensive player, a guy who's creating a lot, as he did for the Wolves last season. They put the ball in his hands a lot at the beginning of the year to try him out, see what he could do in pick and rolls. It went okay. It wasn't great. And so they kind of you know, transitioned into a different kind of system later in the season where Ricky Rubio's handling more of the ball, Wiggins is working off of it. You know, you want to look at both those scenarios and say, how good could a team be with him there? And conversely, how good could a defense be when he's going to be completely locked in on some nights and be great, but he's going to be lost off the ball some. He's going to be, you know, just kind of tuned out on some of his matchups. He's going to be one of the worst rebounders for his height and athleticism at his position in the league. For no good reason. Yeah. And so there's so many little things with him where he could potentially be better. And maybe maybe we're unfair in terms of discounting him just because we know he could do certain things at a higher level uh, because of who he is and the profile he has physically and athletically. But when you look at how he actually performed and how his team performed with him on the court and you're trying to account for all of these many variables involved in what the Timberwolves do, I think this is about right for him. He's a guy who can score well, who can get to the free throw line well. But aside from those two things, he still has a lot of work to do. So this 60s range is always a tough one for us because it's sort of like you're not quite a number two guy. You know, if there's 30 teams, right, uh, you're kind of in that are you a number two or a number three guy at this point. And with Wiggins, uh, we knew that he could score. We knew that he could use a lot of possessions. We knew he could get to the free throw line. We didn't know he could do anything else. And we didn't know that any of it could translate to winning. And uh you know, Sharp was much higher on the Wolves, as we've documented over and over on the podcast. I love bringing it up because he was so flagrantly wrong about Minnesota last year. But uh, I think rosy assessments of the Timberwolves expected Wiggins to make that kind of a leap into the, the he's a no-brainer, really quality number two guy. 
And when you're looking at his overall package, he didn't do that. I thought defensively, like you're mentioning, the off-ball stuff was bad. The on-ball stuff wasn't great either. I think he was being asked to do too much. And when we do look at the vacuum, he's playing an awful lot of minutes for them throughout his career. And it is tough play after play when you're playing that big of a load, even if you're a young guy with no injury issues, to maintain uh, total impact throughout that time. So that probably makes him look a little bit worse than he would. Well, and also on that note, I do think he does get credit because three seasons in the league, as you said, leader in minutes played in the NBA last year, he's missed one game the entire time. Uh, a really phenomenal track record in terms of his availability. And he was like 12 years old when he came to the NBA. Yeah. That's very impressive when you're playing against men. Absolutely. Like, but the problem is if you're healthy but you're not rebounding at all, you're not playing defense, and you're not really a playmaker for others, at some point we have to moderate uh, how much praise that we're giving you overall. And I think some of the advanced numbers, impact numbers, kind of show through for him. Um, one other thing that I would say now in retrospect if Wiggins was really a top 40 player, which I think you know some people who were advocating for him last year uh, thought he was, we wouldn't be in a situation where they bring in Jimmy Butler this year. No. I think that... We may not be in a position where they missed the playoffs last year. Correct. And I think... Yeah, great point. And I think that is sort of validation that our impression of Wiggins from an outside perspective wound up aligning, I think, with... Uh, Minnesota's internal impression. They think he's going to be really good. I expect him to get a big contract from them. Uh, but he is awesome as your number three guy. If he's your number three guy, you have a chance to be special. Definitely. Uh, you may not make the playoffs as a number two guy if he, if that's his role. And so I think uh, the Butler move in some ways uh, recasts him into a situation where he could really star in that role next year. I think you know, th- this could be a really high potential for him as an individual player. And that could really help his reputation. Yeah. And I think he's got a great uh, mentor or you know somebody to learn from with Jimmy, but he's also got a guy to just take the burden of the stuff that was too hard for him. Um, and that could wind up really changing his perception, I think, as a player. Definitely. And it helps guys like Towns, too, who, you know, as a lead option or a second option, however you want to look at their offense, Towns can do so many different things, and he can operate from so many spaces on the floor that if you have Wiggins in a really focused third role alongside him, he doesn't have to be a 25-point scorer every night for them to be you know, good or competitive. He can space the floor some. He can do some high post passing, which, I mean, he has great vision and maybe was even a little underutilized in some respects over the course of last season in that regard. And so, I mean, that's one of the most fascinating things about Wiggins is there's so many ways you could mold him or channel him to really make the most of what he does well. But I think some of the things that he does poorly are still huge question marks. The shooting off the ball, Again, the attention to detail on defense and his effort levels there, which, again, may be tied to his minutes. And so if you regulate those, how much does that intensity improve? There's still a lot for us to kind of figure out with him. And so I think this is a fair place to kind of park him until we do. Yeah, and I expect him to to rise up here uh, next year. Will it be a big jump, though? I think that's still an open question. We will see. All right, uh, Sharp's next question for us is, what's going on with the non-elite centers, right? So we're looking at players like Jonas Valanciunas. Last year, he was 62. Uh, he was right ahead of a guy like Greg Monroe, who's kind of shifted into that center role. Um, he's in a similar ballpark as a, a guy like Marcin Gortat, who was up at 55 for us, you know, Wizards center. Uh, and there are a few others in that, uh, that vein, um, or even some guys who are maybe further down the list uh, were like, you know, Clint Capella snunk, uh, snuck on. How do you see the changing nature of the center being reflected in next year's list? And the reason why I ask that is we just come off the finals. 
there was a time in, in that series where all 10 guys on the court were six, seven or shorter. Um, you know, there was other times where guys who we would consider threes were playing five. Uh, there was situations again where, you know, Draymond Green, uh, we would think of him as a kind of a stretch four. He has now become like maybe arguably the best center in the NBA. And this is a evolving conversation we've had these last couple of years. But specifically with guys like Valanciunas, Monroe, or maybe even an Enos Cantor who was on our list, um, those guys, are they all guaranteed to fall next year? I mean, are we looking at them as guys who, because they don't fit the best-case scenario model of what a five should be, or they, they become these matchup issues uh, in the postseason where, like, Toronto really can't play a Valanciunas at times, uh, or, you know, a team like Milwaukee, they're just really hoping for more from Monroe probably in the postseason. Um, do we have to now consider them in a different way than we did even last year? I think we do. And this is one of the areas in which the Kevin Durant Warriors present such a different state of the league than the non-Kevin Durant Warriors did. Because before, you could look at the best that the Warriors had to offer or the best that the Cavs had to offer, and you say, okay, I can, you know, worst case scenario, I could put my center on Andre Iguodala and live with a lot of what's going to come out of that on defense. And you can find ways to kind of manipulate the matchups. Now, when you put Durant out there and when you're looking at the Warriors as the gold standard of the league and say, this is what it takes to build a championship team now or even compete at a championship level, I don't know how you can look at a lot of these centers and feel very comfortable. Because if you're going to be a center against you know teams that are this good and that play this small, you almost have to be an amazing rebounder. Not just a good or very good one, but an amazing one. You have to be flexible defensively. You have to be able to, you know, post up in certain matchups, but not be so reliant on the post up that you can't space the floor and roll and do other things. So it really, I mean, we're asking something that's pretty impossible of today's centers. And it's it's tough because some of these guys, they grew up being developed and honed and channeled to do specific things. And those things are either obsolete or kind of nearing obsolescence. And so it, I don't know how you pivot when you're in the middle of your career to change and do all these things that are now being asked of you, but this is kind of where you find, you know, the Nikola Vucevic's of the world. For sure. And like, I mean, the guy who didn't make our list and probably never will, but he would have made the list in 1986 would be like Jaleel Okafor, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he is the best uh, eight track cassette, you know, I mean, congratulations that you are worthless in 2017 so much so that he doesn't even get to be in the team photos when they go on Instagram and, <laughs> and the trust the process guys are involved. Everybody just forgot that he existed uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, but he's a great case in point where uh, what he does requires the team to be structured around you. So if you're in a vacuum and you have Okafor, you are committing to giving him the ball a lot. You're giving him this possessions. We're saying you are our go-to guy. He is just never going to be able to be as efficient as a team that's built around guards at this point, the way basketball is being played. And a lot of times when we're talking just sort of, you know, prognosticating in terms of who's an offseason winner, who's an offseason loser, we look at the Warriors maybe as an unfair standard. Okay, well, did Houston have a good summer because they kept up with Golden State or not? Uh, that is kind of an unfair question because Golden State is so good, they're so unique. But when we are doing this list, we have to keep in mind the Warriors' standard because they're showing us new and impressive ways to play basketball. That This is best practices. The Golden State's doing it. You know, if, if, And if you can um, find ways to make players this good, if you can take Kevin Durant from being you know, the second best player in our list for what, the last four or five years in a row and bring out even better version of Kevin Durant... You know, we have to factor that in when we're judging all these other players. Could these other players succeed in a similar way as the Warriors, or 
would they not even crack the rotation? I mean, these are key questions we have to ask. Definitely. And these guys, too, in a lot of cases, I mean, take Valanchunas, for example. When you put him on a team, not only are you worried about how he's going to post up against defenses that are better prepared for that than ever, or how he's going to fare in certain situations defensively, but you have to find a power forward who does all the things that he doesn't do. And so the rarity of those kinds of players, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, potential fours that are great defenders who also space the floor, who can also handle some of these other kinds of matchups, that's a very small list. And so part of what kind of demerits guys that are of this skill set who aren't great defenders, who are mostly interior bigs, uh, who operate in this way, is just the rarity of their of their best counterparts. Next question from Sharp here. It's concerning uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, number 48 on our list. I think earlier I said he was in the 50s. We actually had him to 48. Um, and he says, how could you disrespect Giannis so badly? <laughs> and you can feel the anger from Sharp, even though he's like 6,000 miles away when we're reading this question from him. How did we? We uh, blew it. Did we blow it? I think we blew it. Okay. And some of it, you know, again, as we mentioned, we, we tend to, to favor veterans in a lot of ways. We tend to respect the guys who have done it for multiple seasons for winning teams. Giannis was a jump who, even factoring in the jump we expected him to make, just blew it out of the water. And so I think on some level that's a force beyond our control, these kind of supernatural, almost like divine intervention type leaps based on a player's talent. Uh, but Giannis certainly vaulted himself tiers above where we had him in this ranking. Well, look, not to get too political, but the word of the year is hashtag unprecedented, okay? Everyone's always saying unprecedented. We did expect Giannis to make a big leap. I remember saying, hey, this is a really strong, most improved player candidate. Look at his post-All-Star break play from two seasons ago. The numbers were outrageous. And then we had this conversation back and forth. Okay, but those could be popcorn numbers, right? Like those could be uh, misleading because the games don't matter and they're just throwing him out there and letting him do whatever he wanted. Uh, but something about the way he performed and just how young he was and the level of polish that he was adding to uh, his attacking style in terms of how consistently he was getting where he wanted to go uh, really you know, caught my eye. You throw on top of that all the defensive ability that he has. I mean, he's just blessed with instincts and a motor that a lot of guys don't have. So I was really high on, on him coming into this season. I remember you talking me back a little bit. However, I can't really toot my own horn because who would have seen a guy you know, leading his team in five statistical categories, increasing his stats on every single category yeah. across the board? That's where the unprecedented stuff comes in because if you're projecting, no computer simulation would say, oh yeah, Giannis is just randomly going to have this completely quantum leap forward. You can't predict that. That happens sometimes. And guess what? We kind of like that Giannis made us look bad, right? Definitely. Because he was like the most entertaining player in the entire league last year. And a lot of the things that we were wondering about, you know, how just how good of a defender could he be? Turns out he could be an amazing defender. Awesome defender. At pretty much any position he wants to play. Uh, how was he going to perform in the playoffs? Keep in mind, coming into this list, he had just shot 37% in the, in the Bucks playoff run. This year, obviously so much better. Really gave the Raptors a ton of problems, was all over the place. Even making the most of a Bucks team that can be really cramped at times in terms of his spacing, he's still an amazing finisher in spite of all, all that. And so some of the areas where we just were kind of a little bit cautious or you know pegging for modest improvement or conservative kind of levels of improvement, he, I mean, he just surpassed all of it. Yeah, I remember thinking that like his shooting range was his arm, like his wingspan yeah. was his shooting range. That was the one thing that we came back to, and it's like that's a big problem in the NBA for like 95% of the players. Guess what? Hashtag unprecedented. 
Giannis breaks through that and shows that it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, not as much to him as to a lot of other guys. It probably matters less for him than, you know, just about anybody. And Well, when your arm is eight feet long, too, it tends to help things. <laughs> yeah, and you take two strides from 35 and you yeah. can dunk. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Here's the next question on Giannis, though. How high is he jumping this year? Because 48, okay, we blew it, as you said. Um, I think some people would, would pencil him into the top 10. I mean, is that outrageous, or where, where are you on him? And again, we're not going to give anything away here. We're not going to tell you because we haven't really thoroughly done it, but what's your first instinct, your gut, say about where Giannis lands? I would be shocked if you weren't in the top 15. Ooh, okay. And so I let, think, let, I think, let me push you. Top 10? I think 10 is very doable. Okay. And so, you know, if he does, he's going to fall into the, the last couple picks there, you know, the 7 to 10 range. I don't, he's certainly, in my eyes, not in the you know, LeBron and Steph and KD and Kawhi kind of range yet. And I think some of those really good point guards are going to push him down the list. But other than those guys, I don't know who you look at next season alone and say, I would definitively want this player over him. He's just that good. He's that effective on both sides of the ball. He unlocks so many different things for you in terms of how you might want to play. And again, as we were saying, in, in kind of a modern NBA setting, he might be pretty close to a perfect player, the jumper excluded. He does everything else you would want him to do. He's coming back with the jumper, by the way. I'm just, I'm LeVar balling this into existence. I'm just going to say it's going to happen because uh, it will be unreal if he comes back with a three-pointer. And I'm sure he's in a gym somewhere right now uh, working on it. Uh, let's let's be jerks for a minute, though. Let's What's the argument against Giannis? Because this is something that we do all the time when we're debating, especially these top guys. It's like, okay, we all know why we love Steph Curry's game. Guess what? Uh, you know, amazing three-point shooter. Uh, you know, really good team guy. Off, awesome, off the charts, plus minus, impact. All that stuff he aces, right? But then we do have to nitpick and find the things we don't like about him. Giannis is the golden boy right now. I mean, I think... His rise, not only in terms of his play, but his popularity, how many all-star votes he got, the recognition he received at the end of the year in the awards voting, all that stuff um, really has him as you know almost bulletproof. What are we going to nitpick about Giannis besides the jump shot uh, when we're making our case against him? Anything yeah. jump out? I mean, so if we're going to nitpick, and again, we need like a giant disclaimer, <laughs> no, sirens no. blaring. <laughs> no, no, this is a podcast. No disclaimers. <laughs> we could just be jerks. Go ahead. If we're nitpicking, I would start with one for a point forward, you know, a guy who in theory you want running your offense, initiating your offense, his vision is just okay. He gets a lot of he gets to where he wants to go on the floor. He's so big, he can see certain angles that other guys can't. His playmaking is just kind of okay. He's not hardened. No. He's, he's not, not hardened. Not LeBron. No. And so that's the thing, is like if you want to put the ball in his hands all the time and have a really good offense, he has to have that. And he, you know, maybe he'll get there. Maybe he'll, you know, he's certainly going to start seeing things over the course of running more offense than he did this previous season. He'll certainly progress in that regard. But when you want to get to those elite offensive levels, he has to have that because if he doesn't, then he's then you start thinking of him more as a secondary ball handler. You start thinking of him more as a different kind of threat. And when you do that, then that's when the shooting becomes a problem because you can be Russell Westbrook, and if you have the ball in your hands all the time, you can be really, really good. But part of the problem, you know, when Kevin Durant was in Oklahoma City, part of the problem was when Durant had the ball, Westbrook had to spot up. And that guy's just not a good enough three-point shooter, not a good enough range threat to really present enough of a problem for for, uh, for opponents in their defensive scheme. So when you look at Giannis and you're looking how to place him offensively to have one of these, like, top five offenses, I think the the jury's still out in terms of what his best role is going to be. So we're going to need to see, still see some of that. We haven't really seen him be 
any kind of definitive leader yet, any kind of culture setter necessarily yet. I think he's a good guy to have around, certainly a talent that everybody respects. But we haven't seen him take on a dominant role within an organization like some of the other guys near the top of our list. Well, Mike Dunleavy Jr. respectfully disagrees after he got <laughs> plowed in the playoffs. Uh, you know, there's a little nastiness to Giannis that could, you know, that could be hints of leadership potential. But sure. I kid. Your point is very well taken. With the young guys, and this is something I, I kind of, you know, shove down your throat year after year. It's always the prove it, right? He's got to take him to the second round, you know, before we're gonna really, really get serious about hyping Giannis. He's got to be able to be the lead guy on a super efficient offense because otherwise those other teams that are in the top five of those offensive efficiency guys, you know, their offense uh, leaders deserve the credit. You know, if you're Steph or if you're KD back in Oklahoma City, if you're LeBron, it's very hard to supplant those guys or Harden uh, in Houston if your offense is just lagging behind them. And so I think we want to see elite team offense uh, from Giannis. We want to see the three-point shot, no doubt about it. We want to see postseason progress. And I have a feeling we're going to see all of those next year, and I'm going to be selling uh, Giannis very, very hard to you in our in our conversations once we really do this for real. Uh, next question, and it's obligatory. Sharp just wrote in size 72 font, number 46, which everyone knows is DeMar DeRozan. Now, he was one of our longest-running gags, I think, on the podcast. I mean, we really milked him like a bell cow for months in terms of content, and the Toronto media certainly did their part, constantly asking him questions about how it felt to be overlooked. And he had a few shots at us, as did, by the way, number 45, Isaiah Thomas, who felt that he was vastly underrated as well. When we look back at the 46 ranking, do you feel bad about it? Because I have strenuously defended our ranking of, of DeMar DeRozan as being accurate against all comers. Am I nuts? I mean, do you think that we underrated him? And then am I crazy to say that we underrated Isaiah Thomas at 45 a lot more than we underrated DeRozan at 46? No, I think that's about right. And so, you know, DeRozan, to be clear, I think deserves to be higher than we had him, but not by that much. Okay. And that's because there's still such huge caveats in terms of how good could a team be when he's your lead creator? And if he's not your lead creator, what is he doing for you? Because we're talking about a guy who isn't much of a rebounder, isn't much of a defender, isn't much of a playmaker, certainly isn't much of a perimeter shooter. And by the way, this is not even just us saying these things. Like Dwayne Casey's harping on DeMar's defense right? regularly. He's praising DeMar's improvement as a playmaker, but he's not saying, again, he's not hardened. Yeah. Right? And this is a guy who, again, took, what, five games in that series against the Bucks to, to really figure out where he needed to pass the ball. And, you know, you can do that when you're the Raptors against the Bucks. If you're in a, a series that has a little bit less margin for error, yep. things tend to go south fast. And so DeMar is a brilliant player in a lot of ways, incredibly skilled. I think within the range of what he does well, he does so many of those things very intelligently in such a smart way in terms of using his footwork, using his fakes, very refined. It's just a matter of the things that are a little bit beyond him and that he really hasn't grown into in ways that you might like to see. You know, he's had months where he looks better defensively he's had a couple of games or a couple weeks where the assist numbers you know trend upwards a little bit and certainly year over year over the course of his career there's been a lot of steady improvement in a lot of different ways i just don't think he's quite at the level of some of these upper tier stars or even some of the secondary stars that we have higher on this list who are just more flexible players overall yeah so this goes back to a few things number one he is a classic candidate for being overrated by the casual fan because his best skill is scoring, right? And 
he doesn't necessarily do it the most efficient way because he doesn't have the three-point jumper. Uh, he's a tough shot maker, which people love to fall in love with. I mean, that's almost separate from scoring to me. It's like if you can hit that crazy turnaround jumper um, you know, over people uh, and you do it in the Kobe Michael-like fashion, it's very easy to fall in love with those highlights, mm-hmm. right? And to be fair, we do consider that as almost a second, like a different criteria yeah. from regular scoring when we're talking about this list because you need those guys. It's just a question of is that little individual part of his game enough to overwhelm some of these other things he doesn't do? So he's classic candidate for being overrated for those reasons. Also, his context helps him become overrated too because he gets to be an all-star. If he's in the Western Conference, he's not even in the conversation for an all-star to me. I mean, the, the spots are so hard to get. Uh, if Toronto was in the Western Conference, they're not this high-profile 2-3 seed, right? No. They're barely scraping into the playoffs in the Western Conference. So those kinds of things will distort perception of him. Also, his fan base happens to be uh, very, very active and loud and good. I mean, they should be. We give yeah. Raptors full credit. Uh, Raptors fans full credit. We give Jazz fans full credit. We give Blazers fans full credit. Lakers fans are probably the loudest, and, and they're going to be coming after us wherever we put Lonzo next year. There's no doubt about it. Lakers fans are going to think he's underrated. Um, you know, that is stuff that we have to you know, strip out or at least account for, right? I mean, if the online conversation is really falling in love with certain guys, we're going to go back and do the homework to make sure that that love is warranted. And I think that's a a situation where if you say, you know, DeMar's at 46, he's about an average number two guy in the league by that number, right? Because, you know, the top 30 guys are going to be number one guys, 45 to 60 are going to be number two guys. Sure. To me, that sounds exactly right. I mean, he's definitely not as good as Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry is definitely their most important all-around best player in Toronto. And DeMar, you know, as a number two guy in the Western Conference, how many teams would he be a number two guy for? I mean, there's a lot of teams he wouldn't even start for if we're talking about the true contenders. I mean, he's not even going to be a starter at those positions. So that feels right. I don't think that we missed it at all, really. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the context of these players, too, is who can play in those high leverage games and produce within them and, and really excel enough to be on the floor in a finals. And when you think back to this year's NBA Finals, for example, how much good does DeMar do in that series <laughs> yeah. for either team? You know, is, is he, and it's not just their style of play. It's, it's the way that he contributes to a game. Is he really giving you a lot in a game like that? He's getting picked on by the Warriors mercilessly. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you this. Did he even play against Cleveland? <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll save my uh, cheap, no shots, no cheap shots for when Sharp's back. Um, let's move up because this is another one that just outraged Andrew. He could not believe that we put a player like Chris Middleton over DeMar DeRozan. We had Middleton at 39, DeRozan at 46. And as we always tell people, that is not a very big gap, right? Like that means basically positionally, he's one spot higher than a player like DeRozan at that you know, that wing spot um, on this list. He's just flat out told me over and over that I overrated Middleton, that I'm an idiot because we had Middleton at 39. Of course, we couldn't control Middleton's injury during the first half of the season. But when I look back on the Middleton placement and even his play head-to-head against DeMar in the first-round series, first of all, I thought Middleton was a better player in that series all around than DeMar was. And I think that had Middleton been healthy the whole year, that ranking would have looked just fine, despite what Sharp and a lot of people who would favor the pure scores uh, would say. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm happy to use you as a human shield on all (laughs) matters related to Chris Middleton and any other player. 
Uh, I do agree with you, though, and I think it comes down to Chris Middleton is a fundamentally less complicated player than DeMar DeRozan is. where More you, versatile, more yes, useful. Exactly. You can take what he does, and it applies to almost any team concept, almost any team structure, a variety of positions, a variety of roles and usage levels, and he's always going to be a guy who can knock down threes for you, who has a little bit of a post-up game, which is really valuable for a shooting guard today. may not be the best asset for a center to have, but when teams are running a lot of one-two combinations that are pretty small and trying to cross-match a bunch, having Middleton, as he did in the playoffs, to punish some of those guys can be really valuable. And so you have size, you have athleticism, you have a lot of value on the perimeter at a position that is at a, at a, a low point in terms of you know wing quality in the NBA. I'm glad you asked that because Sharp's next question was, would Middleton actually play more for the Warriors or one of these ideal teams than a guy like DeRozan, because I've made the argument before, you know, DeRozan's not even going to really even be in their rotation. They've got Clay, who's a better fit with Steph. They've got all these interchangeable guys who play defense. I mean, you could argue a guy like Sean Livingston's almost more important to Golden State based on fit with their other players than DeMar would be, which sounds crazy, and Livingston's not on our list, but that just kind of says, okay, how much does what DeMar does do well really work in the best-case scenario team, right? Do you feel that Middleton would do more for a, a team like the Warriors, this ideal basketball team, uh, or not? Oh, I mean, I think the Warriors would love to have Chris Middleton, or the Cavs would love to have Chris Middleton. When you look at the way that those teams play and perform and the kind of gaps that they would love to smooth over in the rotations, but, I mean, the Warriors don't really have any gaps. But to the extent that they do, Middleton would be a huge help. More than DeMar. Yes, more Why? than DeMar, I think. And some of it comes down to, you know, if you're on, if you have a team where you already have an established structure in terms of who you want having the ball, Middleton is a great kind of secondary or tertiary creator who can build off of what those guys already do well. He's one of the better swing passers in the league. He's secretly really good at taking a, taking a pass and redirecting it inside to get assists for layups and dunks, which are you know, obviously super high value shots overall. He's going to space the floor for you, and he's really going to defend two through four. And so when, when you're talking about switching schemes, when you're talking about all the cross-matching you need to do to survive a playoff series and, and this kind of evolving matchup over seven games, guys like Middleton are how you do that. Guys who you can move around, who you can use in a variety of ways. That's the only way you get out of series against good teams alive. And so you can try to bludgeon them over the head with guys like DeMar <laughs> game after game after game. And you know sometimes you're going to have the talent to make that work. Or you can try to finesse it and say, okay, well, what if we use Chris Middleton in this way? Or what if we use him in this matchup instead and free up these teammates who are going to benefit from his presence? And so that's where I think a guy like him really shines on those kind of high leverage stages. And again, this is a great example uh, in terms of the contrast with DeRozan, some of the factors that led DeRozan, I think, to be overrated by people. Middleton's a classic guy to be underrated. Small market team. They got no buzz around that squad. He's not the best player on his team. Giannis is getting all the attention. He's doing a lot of the dirty work that helps make Giannis go, not getting credit for it. And he was injured for half the year, so he's totally off the radar. And that kind of submarines their playoff uh, seating, so they don't have the buzz of a top three or top four team that they could have been had he been healthy the whole time. Yeah. So it's just a very classic uh, confluence of factors that say, oh, let's just keep forgetting about Middleton. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, you put him in a different situation, that same guy, he might have a lot more buzz than he's got right now. My hope, and I don't want to be too uh, much of a Milwaukee stand on this podcast, my hope is that next year Middleton is finally getting the credit that he deserves. I think the basketball nerds are on to Middleton. I definitely don't think the casual fan is. I still think he's probably the best player that nobody's ever heard of in the league. Yeah. And I hope that next year that changes. I think it may. And, you know, the Bucks are one of those teams that – by the nature of their makeup and how young they are, 
they could have really pop in a big way in the standings where there's just such a vacuum in the East. And you know, you're going to pencil in, well, I mean, Cleveland, we will kind of want to see how this Kyrie situation resolves to figure out where they stand in terms of their roster construction. Obviously, Toronto and Boston are going to be really good. Other than those teams, I, do, I think that Milwaukee could be on the level of a Washington. They could be on the level of these other kind of next-tier teams in the East, if not pushing even higher than that, because Giannis could be that good. Middleton, when healthy, is that good. They have, you know, it's not a great team construction in terms of how the pieces fit together. It's not perfect, but there's so much talent and so much young talent that they could really make another jump. Okay, so Sharp's next question for us, and we're working our way close to the top 30 here at this point. Uh, we're at 33 last year for Rudy Gobert, Jazz center. Uh, and what he wanted to know is why was Gobert so much ahead of a player like Kristaps Porzingis at 68 uh, or Nikola Jokic, uh, who we had down at 78? Uh, why was there such a gap for those young centers, guys playing similar positions? You know, Porzingis should be a center. I think that they're yeah. slowly figuring that out. Why was there such a big gap? And then did we get that right? I think we, I think, well, so Jokic obviously deserves to be higher on this list. We were going into this ranking without the body of work that we thought we needed to really rank him high. And some of that was just a product of him not playing that many minutes. Now, let's not forget, okay, everyone's favorite internet sensation Nikola Jokic didn't even begin the season starting right I mean they made him work into that role it was a ramp up so when we were doing this process last fall we had high hopes for Jokic we saw the player efficiency numbers off the charts we saw his offensive rating looking stellar and his you know impact potentially being there but we had the same doubts apparently that Michael Malone had right yeah I mean he played 22 minutes a game his rookie year yeah and that's the thing it's easier to look awesome by the advanced stats in 22 minutes a game than it is to scale that. And if you're a young guy, we have to dock you for that. Yeah, and your weaknesses aren't going to be exposed in the same way. You're not as high on the scouting report. You're not as prioritized. And so Jokic suffered a little bit from that. He'll obviously be moving up. How high do you think he's going to be? This is an interesting one. And and somebody who I think you'll hear a lot of variety of opinion on what he is defensively right now, whether he's – some people think he's a complete liability. Some people think he's pretty solid. So there's kind of a lot of room to wiggle in between. I still need to kind of go back to the film and see where I come down on that. Um, I'm more on the negative side, and I'm holding the team stuff against him. I think if you are a center who plays starters minutes, your team cannot be atrocious as a team on defense without me holding you responsible for some of that. Um, Maybe that's too harsh, but they were really bad as a team defensively. They got a a lot of young pieces around him. Uh, They're going to have a big-time boost this year with Millsap. I mean, that's going to really improve their ranking. It will probably help improve Jokic's uh, uh, reputation defensively as well. But he's definitely improvement mode. Like I mentioned earlier, he's still improvement mode to me defensively. And I mean, that may be, it may be an undue burden, but it's a realistic one for the NBA now where, again, if you're not a great defender at center, can your team be that good? Can your team be a contending level team? And so, you know, he certainly has at least some room to prove there, if not a lot of room. Uh, and then offensively, I mean, we're we're clearly wowed by what he can do and what he can create, and they have such interesting pieces there to kind of showcase a lot of those skills. I really, I mean, I really love the way he plays. It's just a matter of resolving some of this talent relative to minutes and usage and how good the team performs in all these different contexts, and of course his defense. Um, and then yeah, as as Gobert, I mean, Gobert and Kristaps are kind of different sides of the same coin in the sense that Gobert has shown that when he's on the floor, the Jazz are one of the best defensive teams in the league. You can put out Boris. That's been proven. Yes. You can put out Boris Diaw next to him. You can put Joe Johnson at power forward. You can put Derek Favors at power forward. You can put almost whoever you want on the court, and they're going to be a really good defensive team. Yeah, and conversely, if he's injured, uh-oh. 
yeah. right? Like that, and it showed. I mean, a couple of years ago, when he goes out, they're a different team. I mean, they they just did not have their backbone, their stability. And when all of his teammates are injured, coming in and out of the lineups, it's not just who's healthy and, and who fits best and who's playing well, like you're mentioning. It's like who's actually able to take the court at certain points, and it almost didn't matter. Yeah, and I think he may end up moving up on our list for this coming season just because yes. he improved offensively in a way that I know I certainly wasn't expecting. I was looking at him and saying, okay, this is a pretty much what he's going to be as an offensive player, and he took another step beyond that. He showed that he can do a lot of other complementary things beyond just the idea that this like vertical center who's going to block a ton of shots and finish some lobs. He looks so much more comfortable in the variety of what he was being asked to do. So to me, he's just a more established and varied player. Uh, Chris Dapps obviously is a phenomenal talent, but a guy who I think is still a little bit away from making that kind of star-level jump, and a guy who, too, has been nice defensively on an individual level when you look at for example the metrics of his rim protection specifically you know how opponents are shooting with him in the restricted area it's great but hasn't really translated to a good team defensive concept yet yeah so key point here is the top 100 uh, of SI's 2018 is not our top 100 league pass favorite players yes Porzingis and Jokic are going to be off the charts in terms of entertainment value who we like to tune into but we have to strip our own uh, fun-loving nature away from that to say okay who's really making the impact we expect both both those guys are going to make big jumps this year i think Jokic and porzingis i would expect both probably to be in the top what 40 or 50 i think that's fair uh which would be a significant jump from last year as you said gobert was at 33 last year i he's going to be top 30 guy to me i mean i think even though there's going to be some changes around him uh, we're not going to try to consider that when we're uh you know we're grading him out individually uh, and he's now proven it multiple years that they can defend at a super duper high level. And we want to give those guys credit um, because it translated to wins last year. I mean, they made a big jump up. He was the reason why, as well as Hayward too. Um, speaking of Hayward, uh, Andrew's next question is, okay, let's look at Boston's quote unquote big three, Gordon Hayward, Al Horford, uh, and Isaiah Thomas. And last year, uh, just to refresh everybody's memory, uh, Al Horford, who is a, a Rob Mahoney favorite, Definitely. was at number 18. Uh, we look uh, down the list. Gordon Hayward's at number 27 uh, last year. You go further down the list, Isaiah Thomas is at 45. So the order of our big three for Boston uh, was Horford 1, then Hayward 2, uh, then Isaiah 3. Uh, when you look back on that, how do you feel about that order? But then more importantly, looking forward to next season, who do you think of Boston's big three is going to be? What's the order of that big three? Yeah, I mean, I think they're kind of one and the same in the sense that I think Hayward has proven that he's the best of those three players. Agreed. Uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, great wing players who can play well on both sides of the ball are just so hard to find. And so when you find guys who have all of this ability, who are going to shoot well, who are going to run pick and roll, who are great cutters, as he showed in Utah and was really asked to do in Utah, and then also can be a really good defender at multiple positions, and I think it's gotten strong enough where he can defend fours pretty credibly, that's a guy you really want to have on your team. And that, again, opens up so much for you. And, and then I think in comparison to Isaiah specifically, one of the things we look at is who are the players who take things off the table? And Isaiah yeah. is a guy who, with his defense and with the way he can be picked on in a playoff series, takes some things off the table. And he's a really great player. Again, utilized almost perfectly in Boston, and we've seen the lengths of what that can do for you when you have him running around screens into these pick and rolls and just how unstoppable that can be. And a great shooter on top of it, a great finisher, especially for his size, and you want to reward all those things. 
But when you have a guy who, again, like the Chicago Bulls can isolate and pick at and pick at and pick at over the course of a playoff series, it's not a great sign. Was it a joke that he was in the MVP conversation? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to like get some headlines out of Rob Mahoney because you're always a pretty cautious, friendly, nice person. To me, that was a joke that he was in the MVP conversation. I mean, to me, there was such a distant, there was such a chasm between those top four guys and pretty much any other candidate on the board. Here comes the politics, guys. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess uh, I'll put it this way. You know, I, I didn't have an actual ballot. I would have put Kevin Durant, who missed a significant yeah. part of the season, over him. I would have put John Wall over him. I would have put a lot of guys over Isaiah just because I don't really see it in terms of that award as being, oh, he's so important to his team. This, yeah. These are the on-off metrics. This is how bad the Celtics are with him off the floor. Like, that stuff matters, but it's not the be-all, end-all for me. So in terms of putting him in a, in a ranking or in any kind of uh, – any kind of grouping with those truly elite players seems like a pretty huge reach. When you're that bad on defense, it just it shouldn't happen. Here's what I'd say, though. Uh, when we're looking at this vacuum test, it's hard to imagine a better situation than what Isaiah had for Isaiah last year. So he's pretty much maxing out in terms of, at least from my opinion, uh, what he could be. Yeah. And I can envision a lot of scenarios that would just not work at all. You know, if you didn't have spacers, if you didn't have... Uh, quality, smart, intelligent veg- veterans. If you didn't have Brad Stevens uh, puppet mastering all of this, I could see an Isaiah Thomas-led team being horrible. We've, <laughs> we've seen two of those teams. Yeah, And it's one of those things where if you look at since Isaiah Thomas came into the NBA, has he really developed to the point where he's doing so many things differently or better that he would explode in this way? Or did teams just kind of underestimate and misuse his ability and what he was good at became more and more important i think that's something too is like the game has evolved straight into his sweet spot yeah and i think there's a lot of stigma against smaller players that has started to uh not be as big of a deal i mean there were some coaches i think who just wouldn't even put him on the court at certain times and now brad's saying look go out there and run an offense and have it be one of the best individual offense seasons that we've seen especially from a clutch perspective uh, in recent memory i didn't see all that coming i'm sure a lot of his coaches didn't uh but again he, can he do it again, I yeah. think, next season? That's a question. And then once you have Hayward in the mix, are you going to need to rely on Isaiah as much? Uh, I guess what I'm saying is I think he's going to come up on our list for sure. Uh, but when we do the, the top three most important, I would say Hayward one, Isaiah two, then Horford three. Um, when I'm doing it, do you would you put Horford over Thomas? I think I would. And some of it is, you know, Horford is another guy who, in the vein of a lot of these players we've talked about, some of the things he he does and that he offers are subtle enough that you may not even realize how much they matter, how much they value, or really how much his teammates appreciate him. And when you talk to players who have played with Al Horford, they love him unequivocally because of these, you know, because of his passing, because of his defensive positioning, because he's the guy you never really have to worry about. The one big, you know, the kind of glaring flaw in his game is the rebounding, and that kind of puts him in an awkward place between if he's the center in our lineup, don't we have to have a power forward who's going to be an elite-level rebounder? That's something to take into consideration. It's probably one of the reasons he's going to drop from where he was in our ranking last year because that was just so evident and so exacerbated by the, the position he was in with the Celtics that uh, it, it was it was so much more obvious. But at the same time, what he's doing for your offense, the way he's able to space the floor and really open things up for guys like Thomas, I think is a more an even more attractive skill, an even more balanced contribution than what a guy like Isaiah is going to give you. The teamwork and culture stuff that you mentioned is something that I do want to underscore because let's be honest, if Tim Duncan unretired, I'd probably want to have him in the top six. And yeah. you'd be like, okay, okay, can we just bring him down to like 20 maybe or 25? 
the guy is 62 years old at this point. Uh, Horford gets some of that sheen, that Tim Duncan-like sheen, where it does seem like, magically, teams that he's on play well, and he has a bigger role on his team's success than his raw stats might indicate. Uh, for that reason, we'd bump him up. So there's another question from Sharp, and it's actually not a question. He just underlined and bolded, you guys are crazy. Derek Favors is not nearly as good as you think. What is going on? We had Favors at number 28 last year. Just quickly, though, he's dropping because of the injury stuff, right? We gave him his second chance, and it looks like it's going to be one of these things where he's just not the same guy, right? Yeah, I mean, or at least one of those things where maybe the injuries are a little more chronic than we thought or a little more persistent than we thought. So while we want to give him room to get healthy again and show that he was the player he was, I think you have to ding him a little bit. He's a really good really good guy to have around when healthy. Um, could be potentially even better if you were playing center for a different kind of team rather than playing power forward and, and you know system with Rudy Gobert with some uh, some players in Utah where he doesn't have quite the same amount of space. But I think he's really talented, really capable, can do a wide variety of things for you. But if he's not healthy, he's not healthy. Okay, Sharp's next question is concerning number 15, Paul Millsap. And he says, Rob, please set Ben straight. He thinks Paul Millsap's a god and really one of the top 15 players. But I know you're smart enough to realize that he's not, that he's one of these guys that the internet overrates. Rob, are you going to set me straight or are you going to set Sharp straight? I'd probably lean more towards setting Sharp straight. Thank you. Uh, I do think, I mean, he's, he's going to drop a little bit because I think due to age and some other factors, he's just starting to decline a little. I mean, it's a natural thing. He didn't have a great season last year. I love Millsap, but I will be the first to acknowledge a little decline set in. I actually think it could be some of the Horford factor. You know, I think Horford might have made him look better and, and those guys might have just worked so well together yeah. that you take Horford away Millsap doesn't look quite as well. Uh, I also think, shooting-wise, he has never been a knockdown three-point shooter. He's been a comfortable shooter, a comfortable spacer, but you know he is prone to up-and-down years. And I think being surrounded by talent, playing with Jokic, uh, I think that could help his number resuscitate, but you can't bank on it, I think. No. And, I mean, this is what we're talking about, though, when we're looking at guys who are going to be great power forward defenders to pair with these centers who may not be great defenders. And Paul Millsap is in that vein where he has such amazing hands, he's going to have consistently high steal numbers and get turnovers and kind of tip balls away for you. And beyond that, a better better rim protector and, and kind of shot blocker than you would think for his size. So he's, he's able to contribute in those ways. And on top of it, he's one of the better kind of off-the-dribble power forwards in the game. He has such a funky rhythm to him that's so hard to predict and so hard to stay in front of that can be super valuable to teams that are able to move the ball. Again, if you're, if you're going to run a really simple offense that's just like drive and kick, then he's not your guy because, as you mentioned, he's not the best three-point shooter in the league at that position. Uh, he's going to be a guy who will he'll, he'll overthink it if he starts to miss a couple in a row, and you don't want that. But if you have a more orchestrated offense, a more complicated offense, one that's going to allow him to pump in and drive off those potential three-point opportunities, he's incredibly valuable. And we, I mean, he's going to be great for the Nuggets, I think, based on the pieces they have. He'd be great for a, a ton of teams. It's just a matter of the fact that, you know, as you mentioned with the Horford factor, those guys were among the highest kind of big-to-big assist pairings in the league in terms of how they were able to facilitate each other over several seasons. And, and that hurt him. And that, you know, he's going to, he's going to, face some of the damage for that some of the damage for the fact that he's getting into the later stage of his of his career but he's still a star yeah and I think one way to look at this is during those mid-season trade talks it's always like who do you want to just drop onto the Cavaliers like what are the dream scenarios and it really seemed to me like a lot of people were finally willing to admit how good Paul Millsap was when those dream scenarios were coming around and being like hey can we just get him as like the Draymond uh 
antidote, yeah. you know, the kryptonite. Um, that was certainly a topic of discussion midseason last year. Uh, it's not going to be a discussion this year because I think he's found a nice home there in Denver. Um, but that is one thing to keep in mind. He passes that. Can he play basketball at the highest level the way you want to play it? Test? Can he be a valuable guy in those situations? No, he might not be You know, taking the game-winning three-pointer in Game 7 of the finals, but he's giving you a lot of quality minutes in that, in that kind of a matchup. Well, if we look at the premise, too, of if we accept that Draymond Green is an incredibly valuable player in today's NBA. And we do. And, and we do. And we did last year. We had him at 13. We took a lot of crap for that. People thought it was too high. I think there's an argument he might have been top 10. I mean, I think there's certainly some names above him who would fall below him. When Guys like LaMarcus Aldridge, DeMarcus Cousins, Blake Griffin because of the injury. But even if he had been healthy, I think you can make a strong case Draymond should be above all three of those guys. Yeah, and so if we accept that as fact and we're looking at who are the guys who you could plug into the Warriors or another similarly structured team to do a lot of the things that Draymond does well? I think you would talk about Blake because of the passing and his ability to run that pick and roll, but he doesn't quite have the defense or the range to play that role. Millsap is kind of the best candidate to be Draymond-like. And so when you're talking about potential fits for him, when you're talking about how he augments what his teammates are able to provide and produce, he's just at that super high level of a guy who's going to basically make everyone around him better. No question. He may come down a little bit uh, next year because of the age factor, uh, but he is going to be in that top 20 mix to me. No question. Okay, we're running out of time here, so let's quickly wrap this up with a much deserved in my opinion of course victory lap now last year we had lebron one kevin durant two steph curry three uh and we also had chris paul four westbrook five now if we want to you know go back and uh you know redo any of that i would say we probably got to have Kawhi a little higher and we probably got to have chris paul a little lower yeah but, but the top three was the real debate i think because coming into last year you remember uh you know steph curry had been the unanimous mvp Kevin Durant had joined up and teamed up with the Golden State Warriors. So there's this question about, okay, how good is he really? Is it going to be Kevin Durant's team when he gets to Golden State? And there's also this question of, could either one of them pass LeBron? Uh, you know, LeBron had been coming off a spectacular finals, but everybody was still asking the same question as every year. Is this finally the year that somebody passes LeBron? Uh, is age catching up? Are these guys going to look better than him uh, when they're teamed up together? Um, or does their team up cancel them both out, and should they both be dropped? We ended up saying LeBron won, KD two, Steph Curry three. We had a lot of debate about two versus three. Did we get it right? I think we did, and I was on more of the Curry side of that discussion, and a lot of that has to do with he's the rare superstar who can be great with the ball and almost as great without it. And just the space he opens up, the gravity of his shooting, the way that when you put Steph on the floor, it completely changes how defenses have to structure themselves to stop him. It's so rare. And so to me, that value is really tremendous. And I think what ultimately gave Durant the edge was the fact that he can be one of the best offensive players in the league, if not the best of offensive player in the league, and also a Draymond-like kind of defender in terms of his versatility, in terms of you know, you're sliding in between positions, but you're also asking him to protect the rim and cover space and do all these things at once. That role is so hard, and Durant showed, particularly in that Western Conference Finals coming into last season, you know, the, the Oklahoma City-Golden State series, that he could do that, that he was up to that challenge against the best offensive team in the league. And you know me, I've been a big Durant backer. I was really passionate last year about not dropping him out of two. I thought he was going to be in a situation where he can go and make Golden State's team. 
I don't know if he totally made it his team. I mean, they really did the balancing act pretty well during the regular season. But one of the biggest bummers to me was the injury, because I think if he doesn't get injured, he has a strong MVP case, top three case for sure to me. Uh, and then also, I think he would have been an all-defensive first or second team selection. There aren't too many guys who are going to be on both sides there. And so that would have been a very accurate reflection, I think, of his value. Now, thankfully, he really balled out in the finals. If he didn't have the best two weeks of his life in the finals, I would have been in total defense mode trying to say, no, trust me, KD is really, really, really important. He's still just right there with LeBron. Uh, the fact that he hits the incredible shot, but then also just is an unstoppable scorer, presents so many uh, matchup issues for Cleveland. Anytime LeBron wasn't guarding KD, it was just a field day uh, for him offensively. And then he really brought the effort consistently to me on the defensive end as well. I'm not sure if anyone else besides LeBron can do everything that KD can do on the court, and that includes Kawhi, and I love Kawhi, and I think Kawhi has a really strong case to be in the top three of next year's list, potentially even supplanting Steph, which I'm sure some Warriors fans are going to you know, send me hate mail and saying there's no way Steph can't be a top three guy. I think it's a real conversation. But to me, when I'm looking forward to next, uh, next year's list, and I want to ask you about this, you know, gut feeling early on, is it still 1-2 LeBron KD, or is this the year for the first time ever in the top 100 that LeBron gets knocked out of that top spot? No, I think it's still LeBron KD. And, I mean, LeBron's just so special in terms of having that kind of singular talent who completely changes everything around him, who, you know, you can put you can put him at power forward, you can put him at small forward, you can run the ball completely through him, you can work him in the post, you can do so many different things. You can challenge him to shoot threes, and he'll beat you in a playoff series based on that. I mean, he he's just so good and can do so many things independent of how much help is around him that I think he has to be number one. And he's a guy who, in the regular season, is probably going to coast a little bit. For he's sure. going to take some games completely off. He's going to just kind of you know, half-ass it, getting back in transition defense sometimes. These things happen. But ultimately, when, when the games matter, he's going to be the best player on the floor. And I think we saw that even in the finals. Even during the finals. And, we, and you know, it was really a case of the Cavs just not having the structure to compete with the Warriors. And who can blame them, frankly, based on what the Warriors have built? Well, if you switch LeBron for KD or you switched him for Steph in the finals, it's a sweep. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. No, no knock to KD or Steph, but I mean, that's the level of talent advantage that... Uh, gold state was working with and, and depth advantage and, and cohesion and fit advantage too um, lebron makes his teammates better it's probably the thing that coaches will say more than media analysts will say more than stat number uh, guru guys will say we'll find maybe certain ways to allude to it but that unquantifiable makes his teammates better you know it comes through in a guy like lebron more than anybody else definitely more than katie steph you've got a real argument there because of the gravity factor that you mentioned but I think LeBron makes his teammates better defensively more than Steph makes his teammates better there. Well, one interesting wrinkle for this in light of kind of recent events with LeBron is do we discount him at all for the fact that while he makes the players around him significantly better, not many seem to really like playing with him? Uh, I'm not sure I would go that far because look at all the, the wise heads, you know, the James Joneses and Mike Millers of the world. They have been very intelligent <laughs> about lining themselves up. You know, even throw Kyle Korver into this mix. Like, they've been very, very... Like, the guys who you know have that basketball IQ, have been around and seen a lot, realize the true value. Now, do we take off a, a few points because Kyrie seems to have, you know, developed some sort of an issue there ego-wise or, uh, you know, sharing-wise with LeBron? Maybe. I mean, it does pierce the sort of in invincibility of LeBron's mystique. Uh, 
but I think that's more of a Kyrie thing, actually, just growing and maturing yeah. than something that I would hold against LeBron. And I think even something Damian Lillard said this. I mean, who wouldn't want to play with LeBron? It's like if you're not playing with him, the appeal of playing with him and competing for a title every single year and always going to the finals and knowing that uh, you know, he can bring the best out of your game no matter what your skill set is, I think is really, really, really strong. Uh, and to me, that puts him in a strong position here for number one. We're not going to give away our, the top of our list, though. We haven't really debated this. And I think there could be a case for KD here as number one uh, going into next season. If we uh, say, okay, maybe LeBron finally does show a little bit more age-related decline. He hasn't shown it yet. He's put that off miraculously. Maybe if some of these chemistry issues bubble over uh, where he's he's not working uh, you know with the same type of firepower and so therefore some of his playmaking ability doesn't look quite as good as it did last year um, and by contrast Katie is set up to have you know no acclimation process like last year he's set up to hit the ground running from day one crazy numbers he probably won't get injured like he did last season uh, and he's clearly ascendant you know yeah. I mean he played the best basketball of his life uh, it, during the finals and the gap between him and LeBron was never smaller uh, than it was during that finals period. Um, and I, I will say this too, in, in honor of the kind of Tim Duncan commemorative yeah. spot near the top of our list, uh, as a culture setter, I think Curry has an interesting place in this conversation. Yes. As a, a, a two-time MVP who welcomed another superstar onto his team, took his lumps, played a less comfortable style of basketball, figured it out on the fly over the course of a season, and came out with a transcendent team, and he, he's just the kind of guy who, look, Steph is a guy who has ego. He's a proud guy. He's a confident player. You know, certainly takes cocky shots. But in terms of what you want in a, in a cultural leader, I think he might be the best guy of these kind of top guys in our rankings. Where LeBron, as you mentioned, there are going to be some issues there. He wants to have a certain level of control. Uh, Kevin Durant, I think, can be a valuable member of a locker room, a valuable member of an organization, but is a different kind of personality. And Steph, although quiet, although reserved in a lot of ways, does have a certain a certain leadership and a certain ease about him that makes guys like Kevin Durant want to go play with him. It's a really, really good point. One of the craziest things about the NBA is that Steph didn't just lose his mind given the size of his last contract. I mean, that guy was playing for peanuts for a, an MVP-level player. And I remember John Wall freaking out about how like Reggie Jackson got paid more than him, and that was sort of a cap issue. There's not really a cap issue to explain how little money Steph was making relative to his performance. So the fact that he was able to be cool with other guys getting paid before him, cool with welcoming him in KD on a bigger salary than he was making, and having the patience to let it pay off in the, whatever it was, $200 million contract that he wound up signing this summer, says a lot about him as a leader. Uh, and the fact that they were able to reel off 67, 73, 67 during that time period, I mean, he gets a lot of credit for that. Okay, Sharp's last question here, and let's uh, do this quickly. Uh, risers and fallers in terms of the top 10 guys. Uh, just spit out some names real quick of guys who you think who were in our top 10 last year who might be out and some guys who were in that 11 to 20 range who might be in. Well, I think Giannis, as we mentioned, has a conversation to be in from well outside. I think you could look at some of these really compelling kind of two-way players who were in the teens, guys like whether it's Jimmy Butler or John Wall, who's coming off a tremendous postseason, who have an argument to kind of be a little higher DeMarcus is an interesting guy just because he obviously has the talent to be there. I think we still have a lot of questions as to his fit in an organization and some of the problems he creates. Um, and there's kind of a prove-it season for him there as well. 
And then guys who could fall out, I mean, I'm still on the Anthony Davis train. I don't see him slipping out just yet. But as we mentioned, Blake, with his injuries, I think has to drop a little bit. It'll be interesting to see what kind of we make of Westbrook and Harden and Paul, where I think all those guys are going to be in the top 10, but their positioning could move around a lot. Yeah, I think Chris Paul was at four last year. He's been a guy who's always been really close to the top of our list. I think he's falling this year by sort of his own admission of joining Harden's team. Harden was at seven. I think you know there could be a potential for those guys to kind of switch spots. Westbrook, I think, is going to hold tough in that top five uh, or right around it. Kawhi, to me, is definitely going to make a push up. Uh, like I said, challenging Steph for the third spot. Uh, Blake Griffin, injury-wise, we've given him enough opportunities to show he can consistently do it. I, he was at 10 last year. I think he's falling out of the 10. And I think Draymond who was at 13 last year, there's a, a really strong chance he moves in the top 10. Uh, past that, I think some you know guys in the teens who could move up, you know Jimmy Butler, John Wall, those are both guys who really proved a lot, I thought, uh, last year. You know Jimmy carrying a, a real wrecking crew of a team uh, you know, through to the playoffs pretty much single-handedly. Uh, earned my respect, John Wall being able to turn around what was a tough start to their season. He was 17 last year. I think he's going to be able to move up a little bit. Uh, that's pretty much what I've got for you, Rob. I know we've talked for quite a bit. I've taken up a whole bunch of your afternoon. Uh, thanks for joining me. We're going to pick this back up, you and me, off mic. Definitely. Uh, to do our top 100 of 2018 conversation. Uh, do you have any final parting shots you want to send Sharp's way? <laughs> None for, particularly for Sharp, but I will say one of the things that I, I wrestle with every night as I'm going to bed, tossing and turning, is what the hell are we going to do with Joel Embiid on next year's list? A guy who... All the injury questions maybe you know point him to being well down if if on it at all. If you can count on a guy who's only going to play X number of games on a top 100 list, because on talent alone, I've certainly had people tell me he's a top 10 player in the league based on his value and, and what he produces on the court, if not a top 15 or a top 20. And so how we reconcile that, I don't know. I hope you have a better answer than I do. I have no idea. I mean, he is going to be the toughest guy. There's no question about it. And it's hilarious because we've been able to delay that decision for so many years because he just never had his rookie year, right? right? So now he's finally eligible here entering year two. Uh, well, thanks for being such a good sport. Uh, Breakaway Podcast is coming back next season, season two. Everybody check that out. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Rob does a great job on there. Uh, thank you guys for listening to our long, extended, probably sometimes convoluted conversation here about players. We appreciate it. Go ahead and email us, openfloormail at gmail.com. If you have any gripes or questions uh, about the conversation we just had, I'll be glad to address them at later podcasts. I'll maybe I'll, I'll rope Rob in uh, for a follow-up as well. Uh, and we may do a podcast teaser alert. We may do a podcast uh, once we've settled on our top 100 list, maybe breaking down some of the biggest debates from that list. Uh, later this summer uh, or on into September. Uh, again, thanks for listening. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please give us the five-star reviews. We love to hear from that. Uh, and also, go ahead and follow me on Instagram, ben.golver. Follow Rob, too. Rob, shout out your uh, your Twitter account, your Instagram. I mean, just go ahead and go all out. Self-promote. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, at Rob Mahoney. And uh, that's about it. Great, Rob. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back next week with another special guest. Email in any other guest requests. I've loved some of the, uh, you know, people want me to have Popovich on, Rob. I mean, if you can get, <laughs> I imagine he has better things to do this summer, but I mean, shoot your shot. I'm, wor I'm working on the pop plug. All right, guys, take care. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. 
Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.